Volume Three, Chapter Seven of A Charming Fellow. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Charming Fellow by Francis Eleanor Trollope. Volume Three, Chapter Seven. So you had that fine gentleman, Mister Algernon, and what do you call it, Arrington here last evening? Said Jonathan Maxfield to his daughter on his return from Duckwell. Yes, father. He had been before in the afternoon. He was very anxious to see you, but Aunt Betty told him you wouldn't be back until today very anxious to see me was he i have my own opinion about that but no doubt he wants me to believe that he's anxious he seems in a good deal of distress of mind father i dare say and what about the minds of the folks as holds his promises to pay just so much waste paper those are i take it i'd as lief have his word of honour myself and most people in whitford know what that's worth i think he's been very unfortunate father hmm. What worldly folks called Miss Vorden is generally the Lord's dealing according to deserts. It's set forth in Scripture that the righteous man shall prosper, and the unrighteous be brought to naught. But, Father, even good people are sometimes chastened by afflictions, said Rhoda timidly. Old Max knitted his brows. There's nothing, said he, more dangerous than for the young and inexperienced to rest texts it leads em far astray when that kind of chastening is spoken of it don't mean the sort of trouble as has fallen on young arrington the almighty has given every man reason enough to understand that if he spends thirteen pence out of every shilling he'll be beggared before the year's end i don't believe in men being ruined without fault or foolishness of their own he asked me if if you if i thought he asked me to ask you to have a little patience with him about some bills I didn't know that he had any bill here, but he said you would understand. Aye, aye, I understand. It isn't bills for tea and flour and bacon and such like. It's a different kind of bills the young gentleman's been meddling with, and a fine hand he's made of it. Couldn't you help him, father? Rhoda spoke pleadingly, but with the timidity which always attended her request to her father, whose recent indulgence had never reached a point of weakness, and who clearly showed in all his dealings with his daughter that he was not carried away by his affection for her but acted with the consciousness of a will unfettered by precedence and perfectly able to choose its course without regard to what other people might expect of him for herself in pleading for algernon she was not moved by self-conscious sentimentality neither did she suppose herself to be doing anything heroic the peculiar tenderness she still felt for him was made up of pity and memory the algae she had loved was gone had melted into thin air like a dream under the morning sunlight mr errington the postmaster of whitford and the husband of the honourable castalia kilfinane was a very different personage still he was inextricably connected in her mind with that bright idol of her childhood and her youth his marriage had put all possibility of love-making between him and herself as much out of the question to her mind as if he had been proved to be her brother rhoda had read no romances and she was neither of an innovating spirit nor a passionate temperament and it is surprising what power a sincere conviction of the irrevocable and inevitable has to control the natural feelings we hear so much of but she clung tenaciously to a better opinion of algernon than his actions warranted as has been the case with many another woman chiefly to justify herself for ever having loved him couldn't you help him father she repeated seeing that her father did not at once reply but was sitting meditating with a not altogether ill-pleased expression of face help him cried old max why should i help him a reprobate unregenerate vain ungrateful worldling i did help him once and earned much gratitude for my pains and what a sneaking poor mean pitiful fellow he must be to come here and whine to you a poor pitiful fellow talk of a gentleman yah 
old max derived so much grim satisfaction from the contemplation of algernon's pitiful behaviour that it seemed almost to soften him towards the culprit in whom any glimpse of nobility would not have been very welcome to his enemy when you hate a man on excellent private grounds it is certainly unpleasant to see him displaying qualities in public which win a fallacious admiration and this aggravation was one which old max had been suffering for some time at the hands of the popular algernon his present money difficulties combined with his unworthy methods of meeting them at once gratified and justified jonathan maxfield's vindictiveness he gave forth the queer grunting noise that served him for a laugh as he said and a lot of good his fine marriage has done him and his grand relations i told him long ago that if he wanted help from such as them he must ask it with a pocket full of money then he might have been uplifted into high places and it wasn't only my wisdom neither though that might have been enough for such a half-fledged young cockerel as he was in them days seeing it has been enough for his betters before now i had the warrant of scripture for what says solomon wealth maketh many friends but the poor is separated from his neighbour still rhoda did not altogether despair of inducing her father to do something for algernon what that something might be or how far it was possible for her father to assist young errington except by simply giving or lending him money rhoda was ignorant algernon in talking to her had spoken very glibly but to her very unintelligibly of bills which were in her father's hands and had pointed out with an air of candour and conviction that it would be imprudent on mr maxfield's part to drive matters to extremity it had all sounded very convincing simply from the tone in which it was said many of us are astonishingly uncritical as to the coherence and cogency of words if they be but set to a good tune algernon himself was rather hopeful since that interview with rhoda it could not be after all that jonathan maxfield would actually cause him errington algernon any personal inconvenience for the sake of a sum which was really a mere trifle to maxfield and which appeared very trifling to algernon under every aspect except that of being called upon to pay it he had learned not long previously that certain bills he had given backed by the name of that solid capitalist the hon jack price had found their way into old max's hands this startled him considerably for he had no reason to count on the old man's forbearance the time was drawing nigh when his bills would become due about a month ago some other bills had fallen due and had been duly honoured they had been given to a london wine merchant who would certainly not have scrupled to take any strong measure for getting his money and even the name of jack price was no talisman to charm away this grasping tradesman's determination to be paid for goods delivered the wine merchant in question doing a large city business and feeling no anxiety as to the opinion entertained by the hon mr price's fashionable connection about himself or his wares under the pressure of this disagreeable conviction the money had been found to honour the bills held by the wine merchant for the discharge of the liabilities represented by the bills now in maxfield's hands algernon had reckoned on castalia's extracting some money from her uncle algernon did not abandon the hope that she might yet succeed in doing so castalia must be urged to make new and stronger representations of their necessities to lord seely but it could not be denied that my lord's last letter had been a very heavy blow and that moreover a number of slight embarrassments which algernon had hitherto looked on as mere gossamer threads to be broken when he pleased had recently exhibited a disconcerting toughness and power of constraining his actions and destroying his comfort the thought not infrequently occurred to him that if he were alone in the world unhampered by a wife who had no flexibility of character and who had recently displayed a stubborn kind of obtuseness showing itself in such remarks as that if they had not money to pay for luxuries they must do without luxuries and that if they were poor it would be better to seem poor and the like dull commonplaces which were peculiarly distasteful to algernon's vivacious intelligence if he thought he had no wife or a different wife 
things would undoubtedly go better with him he was too quick not to perceive that his marriage far from improving his social position had been eminently unpopular amongst his friends and acquaintances to be sure he had never intended to return to whitford after allying himself with the family of lord seely he had meant to shake the dust of the sleepy little town from his feet for ever he reckoned up the advantages he had expected to gain by marrying castalia and set the real result against each one in his mind he had expected to get into the diplomatic service he was a provincial postmaster he had expected to live in some splendid metropolis he found himself in the obscure town which of all others he wished to avoid he had expected to be courted and caressed by wealthy noble and distinguished persons he was looked coldly or shyly upon by even the insignificant middle-class society of a country town all this seemed peculiarly hard and unjust because algernon had always intended to bear his honours gracefully without stiffness or arrogance he would cut nobody he would turn the cold shoulder to nobody he had pictured himself sometimes making a meteoric reappearance in whitford some day flashing with brief brilliancy across the horizon of that remote neighbourhood affably shaking hands with old acquaintance occupying the best rooms in the bluebell and scattering largesse among the servants rattling through the streets side by side with some county magnate whose companionship should by no means chill his recognition of such local stars of the second or third magnitude as the pockinses of pudcombe hall he was inclined by taste and temperament to be thoroughly bon prince such fancies must seem childish but it was a fact that algernon had indulged in them with all his tact he had a considerable strain of his mother's anachronism in his blood and the contrast between those former day-dreams and the present reality was so terrible so mortifying so ridiculous direst and most soul-chilling word of all to algernon that he was unable to face it some way out must be found it was impossible on any tenable theory of society that he should be permanently consigned to oblivion and the daily round of inglorious duties as to what lord seely said about meriting advancement by diligence and working for ten or fifteen years it seemed to algernon pretty much like exhorting a convict to step his daily round of treadmill in so painstaking a manner as to win the approbation of the gaol authorities what would he care for their approbation it was impossible to take either pride or pleasure in working out one's penal sentence algernon felt very bitter against lord seely as he pondered these things and not a little bitter against castalia who had as it were bound him to this wheel and had latterly added the sting of her intolerable temper to his other vexations fate had used him despitefully he seemed to consider that some gratitude was due to him on the part of the supernal powers for his excellent intentions he would have borne prosperity so well a feeling grew upon himself which would have been desperation but for his ever-present instinctive efforts not to hurt himself on the morning after the visit to maxfield's house of which castalia had been an unseen witness algernon went to the post-office somewhat earlier than usual as he reached it a man was coming out who scowled upon him with so sullen and hostile countenance that it affected him like a blow he was on the whole in better spirits on this special morning than he had been for some time past not that he was habitually depressed by his troubles but there was a certain apprehension and anxiety in his daily life which flavoured it all unpleasantly but on this morning he was for various reasons feeling hopeful of at least a reprieve from care and the man's angry frown not only hurt but startled him who is that fellow who has just gone out he asked of gibbs entering the office by the public door instead of his own private one in order to put the question that is roger heath the man who has lost his money letter an uncommonly ill-looking rascal i take leave to think <clears throat> he is a decent god-fearing man sir i believe but at present he is wrath and not without some excuse either he tells me he has written to the head office and what then and has been told that due inquiries will be made of course 
"'And what then?' "'Why, then, I suppose that's the last he'll hear of it.' Algernon lightly flipped a white handkerchief over his face and bright curling hair, filling the close little office with a delicate perfume as he said, "'So there's an end of that.' "'An end of it, I suppose, as far as Heath is concerned, but I doubt we shall hear more of the matter in the office.' Algernon paused with his hand on the lock of the door leading to his private room. He kept his hand there, and scarcely turned his head as he asked, "'How so?' Mr. Gibbs shook his head, and began to expatiate on the singular misfortunes which had been accumulated on the Whitford post-office, and to hint that when two or three suspicious cases had followed each other in that way, an office was marked by the superior authorities, and means were taken to discover the culprit. "'Means? What means?' said Algernon carelessly. "'You said yourself that it was next to impossible to trace a stolen letter, and really, if people would be such idiots as to send money by post without precaution, in spite of all the warnings that are given to them, they deserve to lose it.' that may be sir still of course it is no light matter to steal a letter and as to the means of tracing it why i have heard of trap letters being sent containing marked money the handle clicked the door was opened and sharply shut again and the whitford postmaster disappeared into his private room it was more than an hour before algernon reappeared in the outer office he advanced towards gibbs and leaning on his shoulder with great affability said to him in a low voice you've no suspicion of any one about this place eh the old woman that cleans the office that boy jem no suspicions of anybody eh oh well i'm excessively glad of that one hates to be distrustful of the people about one gibbs shook his head emphatically and decisively no one has access to the office unless in my presence sir not a creature the fact is said algernon slowly that i have missed one or two papers of my own lately matters of no consequence god knows why any one should have thought it worth while to take them but they're gone gibbs looked up with serious alarm in his face dear me sir he exclaimed dear me mr addington i wish you had mentioned this before oh well you know i thought i might be mistaken i hate being on the watch about trifles but latterly i am quite sure that papers have disappeared from my secretaire from that little cabinet with drawers in it that stands in your room exactly but i was under the impression that you kept that carefully locked algernon laughed outright what a fellow you are gibbs fancy my keeping anything carefully locked the fact is it is as often open as shut only a few days ago for instance mrs errington mentioned to me that she found it unlocked when she was here he stopped as if struck by a sudden thought and turned his eyes away from gibbs who was looking up at him with the same uneasy expression on his face by the way mrs errington did not stay very long here did she asked algernon with a degree of marked embarrassment very unusual in him it was an embarrassment so ingeniously displayed that one might almost have suspected he wished it to be observed when do you mean sir mrs errington comes very often very often indeed does she i mean i mean the last time she was here did she stay long then no answered gibbs removing his eyes from algernon's face and biting the feather of his pen thoughtfully at least i think not sir i cannot be sure she very often does not pass through my office but goes away by the private door in the passage there was a pause i really am very glad that you don't suspect any of the people about the place gibbs said algernon at length rousing himself with some apparent effort from a reverie as long as i have any authority here no innocent person shall be made unhappy for one moment by watchfulness and suspicion that's a very kind feeling mr errington but i shouldn't think an innocent person would mind being watched in such a case for my own part i hope we shall trace the matter out it shan't be my fault if we don't you are wonderfully energetic gibbs an invaluable public servant but gibbs it will not i think be any part of your duty to mention to any one at present the losses i have spoken of from my secretaire there is no reason as yet to connect them with the missing letters 
i did not duly consider what i was saying the papers after all were only private letters of my own gibbs they concerned no one but myself one was a mere note an invitation from a lady they could have had no value for a thief you know i, I dare say i mislaid it and never put it into the secretaire at all algernon went away with downcast eyes and hurried step and mr gibbs stared after him with a bewildered gaze then slowly the expression of his face changed to one of consternation and pity poor young man he exclaimed half aloud that woman has been making free with his papers beyond a doubt and he does his best to shield her a worldly-minded vain woman she is that looks at us as if we were made of a different kind of clay from her and they say she is furiously jealous of her husband but this this is serious this is very serious indeed i am sorry for the young man with all my heart End of chapter 7